As we gather, may your spirit work within us. As we gather, may we glorify your name. Knowing well that as our hearts begin to worship, we'll be blessed because we came. We'll be blessed because we came. When I talk with people and what I observe in the church is a bit of confusion when it comes to the presence of God. Right? We talk about his presence being here or there, but at the same time, there's a fancy word called omnipresence that theologians use to mean that God is everywhere. Well, then if he's everywhere, then why, why do we talk about his presence was there yesterday like it wasn't the day before? Or what is it that we think when we come into this building, it's somehow more sacred than when we go into our work building or, or Jensen's? Is there a difference between them? The, <laughs> <laughs> Someone said duh. Um, that's good. So, but among Christians themselves, you'll see two kinds of people in the way that they discuss God's being with us. You'll have some who talk about his presence in such a way that it's as if God was a little thing, a little feeling that you get, a little piece of comfort whenever you're afraid, and you can keep him in your pocket just in case. And, and he's, he's blessing you all along the way. Now, I'm not, not saying that he isn't with us and that he doesn't bless us. But some of us talk about his nearness in such a way that it's as if we own him. And he's our little gift to keep with us. And we basically do everything but sprinkle. We take it out every now and then play the Jesus card and kind of make life better. Others talk about the God who's way bigger than all that, who's in charge of history. He's directing everything, and he's got great power and authority and strength. Yet, he's got so much of that that you get the feeling that they don't, they're not aware of his working in their day-to-day life. And, and they'll come and they'll pray, God, come meet us here, and they forget that he was here. It's we who stepped into his ground. Or that we got to sing to get his attention. Now, both of these Christians are right and wrong. <laughs> the first group emphasizes that God is present among us, but they are so emphatic on his presence that they forget that he's also above everything and greater than everything, that he can't just be held in my pocket. The other group sees him as so big, you, you call it transcendence. He transcends everything. He's bigger than everything. He cannot be contained. He's everywhere. Yet you also get the sense that God is somewhere else and occasionally comes to join us. So we have a problem where we're either emphasizing too much of his, his presence, like a personal buddy, or too much of his transcendence, like a a king on a throne somewhere away. The Bible says both are true, but both need to be true at the same time. And then you get something that looks 
more accurate. A, a God who's above all of it, yet is with us at the same time, but can't be just fit into my pocket and being used at my pleasure because he's bigger than my pocket, right? I'm in his pocket. And yet, and yet, he was here before we gathered. And he's, he's going to be at your home before you get there. He doesn't wait for your invitation. He's, he's there. Ezekiel closes with this amazing vision of the presence. And so we're going to go with our fourth title called The Weight Of. And this one's The Weight Of Presence. You might remember the weight of words. Ezekiel was made mute for a while. The weight of glory. We saw the glory of Yahweh depart from Jerusalem. So um, Israel lost the glory. He left Jerusalem and then it was sacked by the Babylonians. So now they're in Babylon, a thousand miles away in this foreign land with a foreign language, a foreign currency, foreign foods and foreign gods. Far away. And then we had the weight of pride and we saw all the nations that were going down because of their pride. And so now we have the weight of presence. And here, here guys, is where the climax of Ezekiel happens because we saw his presence go away from the people of God and now we see it return. And we're going to see it return in such a way that you and I still feel the effects of it. This is good. So let's go right in to Ezekiel chapter 40 and we're going to see what Ezekiel sees. This is his 13th and final vision. It goes from chapter 40 to 48. So what we're teaching tonight is a single vision that Ezekiel receives all at once. So God is both. The weight of his presence is both that he is transcendent and he's present all at once. He's above and greater than everything, yet he's with us and hears us and walks with us. The amazingness that all of that happens at once. So he's present, but there's a weight to this presence, right? It's heavy. It's substantial. It's real. And now, amongst the people in Babylon, a pagan culture, weeping over the loss of their temple in Jerusalem, Ezekiel gets this vision of a time when God is going to heal this once and for all. And friends, this is great news. We don't have to walk around empty anymore. We don't have to walk around isolated or detached or divorced from that which we need the most. We don't have to keep seeking and searching and going out and beyond because the God who's here can give you what you need now. What you're searching for, he wants to fill and he wants to complete us. All because of this vision. So chapter 40 verse 1, Ezekiel wants everyone to hear about it. In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year after the city was struck down, so 14 years after the whole city was destroyed, it's been that much time of weeping and mourning over the loss. On that very day, the hand of Yahweh was upon me. And he brought me to the city. Okay. Hold your place. We're going to stay in Ezekiel. I want you to go over to Ezekiel chapter 1. 
Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3. The word of Yahweh came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi. This is how the whole thing opens. It's also going to close like this. In the land of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon, by the Shabar Canal. And the hand of Yahweh was upon Ezekiel there. Remember when we opened Ezekiel? That's how it opens. And here they are sitting by this puny little canal in Babylon in which they're probably doing an irrigation project with. That's what the Jews are doing. They're doing some forced work. And there, God's hand comes upon Ezekiel. But we're not in the land of Israel. His temple's been destroyed. How can God be with us in a pagan land? He was. And we opened the book seeing that God was even with Ezekiel there. And then he had this magnificent vision of God's presence in which he saw things that were hard for him to describe. This four-faced throne thing with wheels within wheels, remember? And he saw that. But the hand was upon him there. You just saw in chapter 40 that the hand of Yahweh was upon him. So the way we start is also the way we're going to end. But also in chapter 8, Ezekiel 8. One more thing to see. Ezekiel 8 verse 3. Ezekiel gets another vision. This is his second vision. And it says that he put out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head. Just like, God, could you figure out a better way to pick me up next time? (laughs) And the spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me In visions of God to Jerusalem. And there he's in Babylon. But in this vision, God's hand takes him and takes him to the city. And Ezekiel there sees the city, right? He sees the city and he gets to see all of the sin that's going on in the temple and in the city. And that's when he sees Yahweh saying, you know what? I got to move out. Um, in chapter 37, verse 1, you see once again, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me. So the hand grabs him in this vision and it takes him to in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. Now in chapter 40, you see for the fourth time, the hand of Yahweh coming upon Ezekiel. And for the third time, this means the hand is taking him somewhere else. So he's seeing something. And it says it took him to the city. Okay. Now verse 2. Let's read more about this vision. In visions of God, we're back in chapter 40, verse 2. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze and a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So what's going to happen is 
Well, what has happened is he's been taken in this vision by the hand of Yahweh and transported on the top of a high mountain on which he sees the city of Jerusalem, but it's been destroyed. Ah, but he's seeing something new, right? He's seeing this new city on the top of a mountain. And there he's greeted by a man, presumably an angel perhaps, who's now going to guide Ezekiel through the city. He's going to guide him through the city. But what we find out as he guides him through the city is that it's actually a temple. And now in chapter 40, verse 5, you're going, well, we aren't going to read it um, out loud because it's a lot of measurements that you can feel free to read. And you should. But it will take us a long time from chapter all the way to chapter 43. So 40, 41, 42, measurement after measurement after measurement Ezekiel is taken to this mountain, to the city, and he walks in and finds out the whole city's a temple, and the temple is being measured by this guide. He's walking him in. It's like his virtual reality, right? He's walking him and saying, okay, measure this, measure that, measure that. And what we find out through the measurements is that almost everything is just perfectly squared off. These are perfect measurements. Everything is squares and cubes and so forth. Um, so we see these really good measurements. That God has something perfectly built in store. Okay, now one more thing to look at. Um, Go now forward to Ezekiel chapter 48. We saw how it begins. We're going to see how it ends. The vision has bookends. Okay, 48 verse 30. These shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates. The gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, the gate of Levi. Those are tribes of Israel. The gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates. Joseph, Benjamin, Dan, 33. On the south side, same measurement with the gate of Simeon, Issachar, and Zebulun, 34. West side. 4,500 cubits, three gates, Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. Now verse 35. Their circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. Here we go. The city's back. So after measuring this whole temple, he was taken to a city. They measure the temple. And now he's mentioning the city again and all of its gates. And now he tells us that it's 1,800 cubits. I know, like you, I'm lost too. So my commentaries helped me and told me that 1,800 cubits is roughly a mile. So the city's circumference is roughly a mile, which, interestingly, was roughly the circumference of the city during the Second Temple period, or in other words, during the time of Solomon's reign. Hmm. So we see it roughly the same size. And the name of the city from that time on shall be Yahweh is there. Remember how the book opened? Even in Babylon, his hand comes upon Ezekiel and he, God, was there. The book ends with this city, Jerusalem, restored. And Yahweh is there. We've come full circle. Now, the reason we point out the, the city is that it seems to be that the city itself is not just going to have a temple in it, but that the city itself is the temple. 
In other words, that while Israel once had a city and the inside the city was the temple and inside the temple was a little room called the Holy of Holies, right? And that was where God was sitting on the throne of Israel. What we are seeing in this city is that the Holy of Holies is not just going to be closed off, but it's going to be opened and it's going to expand to dwarf the entire city. That the Holy of Holies is everywhere that they walk in this city. There's something opening up. There's something enlarging here. That's what we're getting hints of that Ezekiel seems to equate the city with the temple because the city, God is there. So this is the exciting uh, beginning and ending that we see. Now, I want you guys hold your place in Ezekiel and go over to Revelation. And now we're going to see how... Another prophet had another vision that was just like this vision. Revelation chapter 21. It's at the end of the Bible, so it's a safe one to turn to. You won't get lost. I understand. Sometimes, like, I don't want to get lost and miss everything. I'll just sit pat. Well, you can find Revelation. It's, if you found the concordance, you're too far. But um, Revelation 21. So this is John, right? The last prophet in the Bible. The last book in the Bible. And it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. He sees the city too. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And as the city's coming down, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear, and we see that he fixes everything. Now, okay, so we see the city. Now jump up to verse 9. 21.9. Then came one of the seven angels, we saw them er there earlier in the book of Revelation, who had the seven bulls, full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now remember that bride is the city. We just saw that in a few verse, a few verses ago. Verse 10. And he carried me away. Exactly what God has done to Ezekiel. His hand grabs him and takes him. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, just like Ezekiel, and showed me the holy city, just like Ezekiel, coming down out of heaven from God. And look at verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed just like Ezekiel on the east, three gates, the north, three gates, and just like Ezekiel, all four directions of the compass, three gates. Hmm. It seems like they're supposed to go together, doesn't it? Now look at verse 15. 
Oh, and also he has this guide, right? This guide has been with him, just like Ezekiel. In verse 15, the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. Oh my goodness. This is just like Ezekiel. Okay. So now you see, um, whatever Ezekiel sees here is so important that the New Testament, the last prophet of the New Testament says, I see it too. That's how important this is. Okay, two more scenes to walk through. So back in Ezekiel. So we're introduced to his vision. He's taken to a mountain. He sees a city. There's a guide. They measure the city, which is a temple. And now in chapter 43. Forty-three, verse one. They're done measuring. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. Now the temple faced east, right? The entire temple faced east, because that was where life came from—the rising of the sun. And this is so. Therefore, this is the front gate, the gate that you walk in to see the face of the temple. Um, in Jerusalem, the eastern gate f- is um, on the edge of the city, and it drops off into the Kidron Valley, and then it goes up. It's a very small valley, and then it goes up to another hill called the uh, Mount of Olives, and that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's also the mountain in which Jesus comes down on the donkey into the Kidron Valley and comes up into the temple through the eastern gate, okay, on the donkey, um, here, so Ezekiel's here in this uh, visionary temple city, and he's he's taken to the the gate facing east, so that eastern gate. And behold, verse two, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, just like the vision that I had seen by the Shabar Canal. And I fell on my face. What's he saying? Remember in chapter 1, and you saw this weird description of a throne with these four-faced creatures, four four-faced creatures uh, with these wheels within wheels, right? That was the chapter 1 vision. He saw the same thing in chapter 8. Now he's seeing the same strange thing now in chapter 43, and it's coming toward the eastern gate. And I fell on my face as he did before. Verse 4, as the glory of Yahweh entered the temple by the gate facing east, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I shall dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my name, my holy name. The glory of Yahweh filled the temple. Okay. 
if you're tired of turning, you just don't worry. But we're going to go left to Ezekiel 9, uh, 10 and 11. Just to refresh, we've already studied this. But Ezekiel 10 and 11, I want to remind you of what happens. So remember, this is the last time Ezekiel was in a vision and was taken to the city. This was the old city of Jerusalem. And when he was taken to that city in a vision, we see in chapter 10, verse 4, the glory of Yahweh went up from the cherubim on the threshold of the house or the temple. So God is moving to the threshold of the temple. Now in chapter 10, verse verse 18. Then the glory of Yahweh went out from the threshold of the house. And in the bottom of verse 19. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of Yahweh. So he's moving from the temple to the east gate. And then finally in chapter 11, verse 22. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of Yahweh went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. Okay. So you remember now, don't you? That that's when we saw the glory of God come out of the temple, go out of the east gate, and go to the mountains on the east. And what is Ezekiel seeing here? He's seeing the glory of God on those mountains of the east, coming to the eastern gate and going back to the temple. It's returning. So the great tragedy within this book, the great destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the, and the demolishing of their temple and, and their exile from what they considered God's land, their exile from that, it turns out that God isn't going to leave that place abandoned forever, but he's going to return. And he's showing Ezekiel to show the people, don't lose hope, even in Babylon and even in your worst circumstance. God has a plan to be present there and he's going to bring everything back to himself so that once again, like we see in Revelation, the dwelling place of God is the dwelling place of humans. That There won't be two dwelling places, but that they will dwell together as one. And we will call that place, we will call that city, we will call that creation. Yahweh is there. Now, The really trippy thing, and I'm sure you've already connected these dots, is that we've already seen this vision come into being. When Jesus of Nazareth rode on the donkey down the eastern mountain, through the eastern gate, and went into the temple. Unless you don't think Jesus was God, that might be another issue. But if he is, then we have the glory of the God of Israel returning exactly as Ezekiel describes it. So whatever Ezekiel is seeing is somehow in motion. I'm not saying it's completely fulfilled, but it's in motion. And the people of God can now be called Yahweh is there. He's there. He's here. He's he's wherever you are. He's there. Okay, one more passage. Chapter 47. By the way, in between 43 and 47, um, Ezekiel's given some commands on how they're to worship and how they're to have their festivals and their sacrifices and that there will be a prince who's going to govern over all of this. So worship's very important. Now in chapter 47, 
verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So um, the altar is in the middle of the temple court, and it's coming out and is going out through uh, toward the east. So from the temple itself, there's this, this fountain of water, and it's becoming a river as it leaves the temple. So he brought me out, verse 2, by way of the north gate, and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man, my guide, measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water. It was ankle deep. So it was a trickling little creek. But, verse 4, again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. Apparently, Ezekiel wasn't a good swimmer, or it was really flowing. (laughs) Of course, though, the Jews weren't actually good swimmers. Of course, remember how Peter panicked when he was walking on water and wasn't walking on water anymore. Um, the Jews just weren't. They were terrified of water. Um, but this one's really moving. And in verse 6, he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, So we're somewhere away from the temple, right? They've been following this river and it's getting deeper and bigger and broader and it's flowing as the further they go, right? Now he's being taken out of it. He's taken to the bank. So I just want to make sure you're getting this picture. And as I went back, verse 7, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah. That's the dead area south of... Um, south of Jerusalem, and enters the sea, which is the Dead Sea. So it's going from Jerusalem down south to the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. Now remember, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because there's way too much salt in it. There's so much salt that you don't sink. You can just float buoyantly in the water without any floaty devices. Uh, it's that salty, and there's nothing that lives in there. No animal, no fish can live in something that salty. But when the water, these waters from the temple hit the sea, they will be made fresh. And verse 9, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Verse 10. Fishermen will stand beside the sea. From Engedi to Englame, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. Uh, that's probably the Mediterranean. Um, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt because salt is good. So they're going to keep some salt around. 
And then verse 12, on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So, the dry desert arid area of Jerusalem and the Dead Sea will basically become the Garden of Eden. It will be fruitful year-round. It will never wither or die or perish because the rivers of life, the waters of life, does that sound familiar? The water of life will flow from the temple and heal the land. This vision is incredibly important. And I, I want you to see why so badly that we're going to do some more turning. So listen or go with me. It's up to you. Genesis chapter 2, another easy one to find. Beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2. Now, what is Genesis chapter 2? What does the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2 look like? Well, we're actually given some hints. One, it's a garden. But in this garden, there's a place called Eden. And this is God's home. It's his place. It's where his throne is. So he's in the middle of a garden called... He's in, a, he's in the middle of a garden and it's called Eden. Now, um, we know from Ezekiel 28 verse 16 that Eden was on top of a mountain. Genesis simply alludes to it. It doesn't tell us that. Ezekiel tells us that. Ezekiel 28. So imagine now in this scene, we have a mountain rising and the whole mountain is a garden. It's just covered with fluffy green everywhere. Beautiful colors of every flower. It is abundantly fruitful. And at the top of this mountain, you have Eden, where God is and where he, the humans are. Now, look with that in mind, look what we have. In Genesis 2, verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. Hmm. That's all you need to read. Garden Mountain, Eden's on the top. And from it, from Eden, the river waters the garden and breaks into four rivers. From the top of the mountain, this mountain is the fountain of life of living water for the whole world. And the four rivers are going to take this life to every corner of the planet. And this garden on the mountain was going to grow and expand so that the Lord's glory, his presence would cover the globe. This was the plan. It would cover the globe from pole to pole everywhere. Adam and Eve would spread the garden along these highways of waters, of living waters. Now, we never got to see him do it because they changed plans. You know how that went? Um, but Isaiah and Habakkuk, as Habakkuk 2.17, both envision a day when this will come true. They say, they say the same thing. The glory of God, the glory of the knowledge, no, the knowledge of the glory of God, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what was supposed to happen in Genesis, but it got cut short 
because we basically kicked God out of it. But it will happen. Now, we see these rivers, these waters bringing life, and that's what we see here in Ezekiel, right? In Ezekiel 37, uh, 47, we see this river that was always intended to be coming back so that it's from the temple, and it's healing everything. Um, it is fulfilling that which Adam and Eve never did. It's fulfilling it. Now, go with me to Revelation 22, the very end of the Bible. You were just there. I should have told you to hold your place, but you know, I have so, <laughs> I'm trying to keep up the way you're trying to keep up, right? Because I have all these passages in my head I got to keep sorted. Uh, he's in Revelation 22. Okay, so you've already seen how this scene is very similar. It's now going to get even more similar. So in Revelation 22, John says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You see it? So from this river flowing from God himself, this river is flowing in the New Jerusalem. And it sees one mega tree. Ezekiel saw many trees. I don't know that that's really too big of a deal to get caught up on. The fact is that life is happening. And the tree has the same function. It's for healing, and it's for all 12 months of the year. He's seeing the same thing, that this water of life that was supposed to happen in Genesis but didn't and is foreseen in Ezekiel 47 is happening in Revelation 22. The whole earth is becoming a garden of Eden. That's what makes it the new heaven and the new earth. But... There was one more passage before all of this, and that's in John chapter 7. John 7, 37. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So John 7, and while you get there, um, Jesus had already talked to a Samaritan woman at a well in John chapter 4. A few chapters earlier. And there he told her, um, I can give you living water and you'll never thirst again. And then she has this conversation with him after it gets really awkward. And he says, where's your husband? She's like, I don't have a husband. And she's like, that's right. You've had five boyfriends and you're not even married to the one you're with now. And she's like, so religion, I'm a religious person. Uh, where should we worship? Because the Samaritans think we should worship on Mount Gerizim. But you Jews want to worship God on Mount Jerusalem. So where really should worship happen? And God, or Jesus, basically answers her and says, neither nor. For a time is coming when those true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's neither on your mountain nor on that mountain, in other words. There's, no, there's not going to be a location of the proper dwelling place of God, of the proper worship. It's going to move to a universal temple. It's going to be everywhere. Right? That's what he's telling her. Now, in John 7, he comes back to this living water theme. And he's now in the actual temple in Jerusalem. And this is the Feast of Booths. 
Now, the Feast of Booths, or Feast of Tabernacles, it's also called, was a seven-day, uh, seven a one-week celebration, which reminded the Jews of the time that they wandered through the wilderness when they left Egypt to go to the Promised Land. Um, when they wandered through that, that they wandered with the tabernacle, the, the, the mobile temple of God on their way. And that they camped around this temple, all 12 tribes, just like a 12 gates around the temple, all 12 tribes around it. And so once a year for a week, they would camp out around the temple in Jerusalem to remember God is supposed to be our center. So they're doing that. It's now the end of this festival. So Jerusalem's packed with pilgrims and worshipers. And now they're in the temple. Look at 37, uh, John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, one of the things they would do on the last day of the feast was they would all gather in the temple and the priest would pour water upon the altar in the temple. And so... We assume that that's happening right now because of what Jesus says. So on the last day of the feast, presumably the priest pouring out water upon the altar in the temple, the great day, Jesus stood up. It's packed, right? There's worshipers everywhere. And cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, John helps us. This he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. We have received. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Good news. Jesus has been glorified. The spirit has been given. What does that mean? It means that the rivers of living water are now flowing from the believer's heart. That we are becoming the fulfillment of Ezekiel 47 and waiting for that final fulfillment in Revelation, the new heaven and new earth. But until that river starts flowing, we are the river. We are the rivers everywhere trying to pour this life and to heal the death around us and to bring fruitfulness all around the 12 months of the year. Now, it has to be. Jesus has to be talking about that passage in Ezekiel where he sees the river because he says, as the scripture has said, he says, I'm quoting the scripture when I say this. The problem is, We don't know what scripture he's quoting. There is no scripture in the Old Testament that says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But he says the scripture says that. What Bible is he reading? You're missing it. He's reading the same Bible you are. He's reading Ezekiel 47. And he's not quoting it. He's alluding to it. Right? He's interpreting that river as the life of the Holy Spirit living within the believer and flowing out from him to bless the world. That's what he's saying. So if Ezekiel's seeing this temple in which it will be flowing with water and healing the land, and Jesus says that that happens when the Holy Spirit comes in believers' lives, it therefore makes perfect sense to conclude that we are the temple. 
that we have become the dwelling place of God, that the holy of holies is not just some place over there that only the high priest can go visit, that it's in our midst. The veil was torn when Jesus died. The holy of holies was open so the spirit can flow out and enter into everyone who receives This river doesn't end in Ezekiel or Revelation or the one Jesus is talking about. It keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. And that's why everything lives. It sustains. I want to give you a brief history of where we've come it may not even be easy to, to appreciate this unless we see the history. The history of the dwelling place of God? Well, as you've already seen, but we haven't connected the dot yet. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he moved in on the seventh day. He rested in it. It became his dwelling place. We saw that Eden was his dwelling place. And those rivers of living water flowed from it and healed. it just brought life everywhere. Eden was the very first temple. It was not a temple with walls. It was not a building. It was a garden. It was the creation. It was his temple. And he walked with humans. That was the first temple. But um, being bad priests and all, Adam and Eve, rather than worshiping the God in this temple... They banished the God of this temple. They basically said, we don't want you to rule this. We've got it. We're going to listen to the serpent. We're going to do things our way. And so he's like, okay, fine. I'll stay in my house. You stay in your house. The house they got was what? Desert, wilderness, thorns, briars, death, sickness. It's it's the wilderness that the rivers need to heal. Well, we got what we wanted, I guess. Um, But then God is gracious. He keeps pursuing us. So there in a wilderness, he meets the Israelites whom he rescues from Egypt. And there he tells them, build for me a tabernacle so that I may dwell with the people. Okay, so there are seven episodes in Exodus where this tabernacle is built. Yahweh said, and then it talks about how they build it seven times. Moses is clearly writing a echo of the creation of the world with the creation of the tabernacle and for we don't have the time at the moment but you can actually go and textually point out lines in genesis that are equivalent to lines in the building of the tabernacle there is an intentional mirror here not to mention the 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 beautiful gems that the temple's made of the high priest wears are the same gems that genesis says the rivers go out and there are those gems found there at those rivers There is a new Eden in the midst of the Israelites, in the midst of the wilderness. God is living with them. He's dwelling with them. So Israel becomes the second temple. And then they get to Jerusalem. They build the structure, right? Solomon builds it uh, like 9, I think it's like 939 no, 959 BC, Solomon finishes building it. He dedicates the temple. And what happens? Just like Moses' tabernacle in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, the glory of God fills it. All right. Then it gets destroyed by the Babylonians, which we've learned about in Ezekiel. And they get, the Jews get scattered everywhere. Then they rebuild it. 516 BC, the Jews come back. 
It takes them a long time to build this temple. There were lawsuits and things that held it up. And then by the time the lawsuits got settled, they got more interested in building stadiums and malls and forgot about the temple. And so he had a couple prophets like Malachi and I think Zechariah to say, hey, hey, let's build this thing. And they finally build it, 516 BC. But you know what is missing? We never see the glory of God fill it. So then we go forward. Judas Maccabee, 150 years before Jesus, he delivers Israel from uh, this oppressive Greek rule by Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He goes into the Antiochus. He's a pagan um, Greek Syrian uh, king. And he goes into the temple and he sacrifices a pig on the altar and dedicates the altar to Zeus. Made the Jews very happy. He did a lot of other worse things. Well, uh, actually, that was probably the worst, but he did other really bad things. He hung babies around their mother's necks. He burned the Torahs out in the street. Uh, there's a lot of persecution in that time. And so Judas Maccabee rises up and does guerrilla warfare against these Greeks. And it takes them three years, but they reclaim the temple on the 25th of Chislev, which is Hanukkah, which is equivalent to our Christmas Uh, He goes in and cleanses the temple. By the way, he rides into it on a donkey and the people cheer with palm branches and he goes in and he cleanses the temple and rededicates it. So the Jews have it for some time. Then Jesus is born 150 years later. He also rides in on a donkey, but this time the glory of God is returning. He comes into the temple and he there maybe at this time says, hey, if anyone believes in me, out of your being will flow rivers of living water. And then he cleanses the temple as well. Um, but remember, this temple building never had the glory of God fill it until Jesus came. But that temple was destroyed by the Romans 40 years later. Why? Because Jesus told the Jews and he told us. After he cleansed the temple, they're like, by what authority do you do this? It's like, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they're like, you can't do that. This temple's been taking years. Herod the Great finally rose it up to a 16-story height with about five football fields of courtyard around it. Like, you can't possibly do that in three days. But then John tells us Jesus was talking about his body. The new temple is Jesus. That's why that temple gets destroyed. So we go from Eden to Israel to Jesus. Now, Jesus shows us this in other ways. He eats with sinners. Start there. Where did sinners eat with God? At the temple, you would bring an offering and there God would forgive your sins and you would eat the meal with the priests and your other family members and you'd be eating with God. Yet Jesus, without the temple, without those offerings, he's eating with sinners. He also forgives sinners. And you remember what the Pharisees and religious leaders say? You can't do that. That's blasphemy. Their point is you can only forgive sins through God in the temple. But Jesus is doing it outside the temple I'm putting this in air quotes, without God, right? Because he is now. He's the presence of God mediating everything the temple is supposed to be. He's now bringing it to humans. They don't come to the temple. The temples come to them. The temple is no longer a building. It's a person. And then when he rises from the dead, he pours his spirit out upon his believers and the church, Jesus' people become the temple. We call it, well, I just said it, the church. Now, everywhere believers go, they're extending his presence everywhere. And as he said, the rivers of living water are flowing from us. And then finally, this imperfect temple that it is, 
but it's great because it's mobile and it moves around and it's living and breathing. But as imperfect as we are as a temple, we will soon give way to the new Jerusalem, which we see Ezekiel seeing. And then the dwelling place of God will be with men. No more separation between heaven and earth. No more distance between man and God. But all will be one. And there will be perfect union like it was supposed to be in the beginning. That's where we stand. We're in this amazing stream of God's. The weight of his presence has been flowing through history and now rests upon you and me. Whoa. But it doesn't stop here. We are part. We are going with that flow to the ultimate temple. So, my friends, I can't think of any better way to close this than Jesus' own words in John seven thirty seven. It's actually thirty eight. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. God is so present, he lives in us. We are the temple. That's crazy. He's so present, he lives in us and with us. I know you don't want to believe that when you look at people down your row, but that he lives there. (laughs) Yet he's so transcendent that he cannot stay within us. He's flowing through us. And he's so transcendent that he isn't limited to the church. He's moving elsewhere in the world, beckoning us onward to follow the rivers of the living water out into the places that are still dead and in need of a drink, in need of trees of life growing, in need of gardens blooming. Transcendence and presence work perfectly, and we don't have a true picture of who God is unless the two work together the way of presence is that yes he's here but it is such a substantial presence it's so weighty and so real that it cannot possibly stay in my pocket it cannot stay personal and private it has to move toward my neighbor it has to move into everything i put my hand to in the world so that everything i'm doing i'm actually doing in the presence of god in his temple If I took that literally and understood I'm a priest in his temple working his glory, his presence around me, I may do everything a little bit differently. And to be truthful, I think we prefer a God who's over there because he doesn't have to tell us what to do over here. But man, Jesus is just challenging us and saying, nope, I'm in you and I cannot even stay in you. I'm moving through you. But brothers and sisters, this is the beauty is that is that it's this presence and this life that is so fulfilling, it cannot be contained. We are constantly bursting forth with abundance. That, by the way, is grace. Grace isn't just something he gives to you when you mess up. It is always flowing through you. Grace doesn't stop. Grace is living water that's always moving. And yet we live with such worldviews of scarcity of hold on and hoard and collect and gather and protect and be greedy and be stingy. And "Mm, I don't know if I can be gracious to this person. Do you know what they said to me? But do you know what's living in you and bursting out from you? To deny this person the presence of the flowing God? 
you are working against everything that you stand for. You are working against the visions that Ezekiel is seeing and the, pro- and the promises Jesus is declaring. And I don't want to work against that. By the way, it's really hard to. If his presence is like this torrential river of living water, the tired people around us are those that are trying to hold that river in. It is the most tiring thing to keep God's grace from moving. No, 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 don't let it out. Keep it dammed up. So the beautiful, the beautiful thing for us to do is to let go. Just let go and let flow. If I let go of everything I'm trying to control, the presence of God will flow like torrents of living water. If I let go of everything I think I need to be or the image I need to present, if I let go, he will flow. If I let go of trying to save this person or change that person or build a protective wall for them around their life and I'm losing sleep over these people, if I let go, he will flow to them. We are our own worst enemies and we are the ones who get in the way of the weight of presence. We must learn to let go and then it will flow. And that's how we will bear fruit. Notice in Galatians 5, you know this passage very well, the fruit of the Spirit. Do you know what Paul called the opposite works? There's the fruit of the Spirit and then he called it the works of the flesh. Works of the flesh are something I strive to do. I think I need to put my effort into it. I must control this. But the fruit of the Spirit is something you just simply let happen. So when I let go, he will flow. And then I will be filled. I will be satisfied. I will be complete and whole. I will be a unified person with the people around me and with God. And the world will get to drink from his living water. We must let go and he will flow. And we will get to ride that current. Ezekiel went ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep. He was afraid to go in where he couldn't swim. Jesus has been promising us that's exactly where you need to be. Let go of the bank. Just go with his flow. Not the culture's flow. Not your laziness flow. You know his flow because you've been trying to bottle it up. But if you let go, he will carry us. And we will see. We will see his temple blooming around us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living